contrary to popular belief, high house prices are not due to supply shortages. The COVID pandemic should have made this clear. Despite the slowest population growth since the First World War and the most number of houses built in more than a decade, prices went up 27%. This is part of an article entitled Federal Election 2021. More supply won't solve Canada's housing affordability crisis. This piece written at theconversation.com by our guest, Joel Roberts. Mr. Roberts is a PhD candidate in the Faculty of Social and Political Thought at York University in Toronto. Mr. Roberts, Joel, good morning, sir, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you along with us, Joel. So, can you, uh, as a as a person who's observed this and followed particularly the progress of the issue through the election, can you articulate clearly what most Canadian voters see as our housing crisis, Joel? Yeah. Well, I think that um, you know most Canadians see the housing crisis. Uh, in terms of, you know, really high house prices. Yep. Um, and the fact that a lot of uh, younger households especially um, can't afford to uh, to buy a house anymore. Um, and uh, home ownership rates in Canada actually fell uh, for the first time on record in 2016. Um, and, you know, that's a big deal in Canada because the the dream of home ownership has always been an important part of this uh, of this country, and the fact that so many uh, young people can't can't afford to buy a home anymore, I think, is is really really sums up what the, what the housing crisis is. Yeah, I think you're right. And uh, Joel, just by the way, just uh, the dream of home ownership is different than the right. To home ownership, I find that some people confuse the two. Uh, dreaming of owning a home is perfectly okay, and a lot of us do. But is it our right to own a home? We have a right to shelter, Joel. Do we have a right to own a home? I mean, it's 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 a, a great question. I think a lot of people would say that you know housing is a right um, that everybody should have a home that they can live in, and this home should be affordable and secure. Um, because without a home, I mean, it's hard to live a reasonable life. But that's shelter, um, isn't it, though? That's the big that's, difference. But that's so that's the big difference, right, is that uh, most people would argue, and in fact, the United Nations argued that housing is a right, but um, certainly owning a house is not a right. Um, it's, you know, it's more seen as uh, part of entering the middle class, right? That's uh, how homeownership has long been viewed in mm-hmm. Canada, is that mm-hmm. You know, to join the middle class, you have to own your own home. Um, so, no, it's not it's not a right, but it's certainly seen as um, uh, you know, an important part of social mobility. No question. Um, and politicians pander to that, don't they? Indeed, they do. <laughs> well, let's talk yes. about let's talk about some of the I was going to say some of the differences, Joel, in the party platforms and lists, laundry lists of promises with respect to housing in the la- in the last campaign. There really, as it turns out, you boil it all down, there isn't a great deal of difference between uh, party A, B, or C on this matter particularly, is there? No, when it comes to affordability in home ownership markets, um, there's actually very little difference between the three parties. Um, There is a sort of general consensus that foreign buyers uh, were contributing to higher house prices, so there's various attempts to, to freeze foreign buying in Canadian cities. Right. Um, and then beyond that, there was um, all the parties have offered various uh, incentives uh, and further subsidies uh, for uh, first-time homebuyers. And then for the Liberals and Conservatives, they both uh, promised to improve affordability by building more houses. Right. Um, and so in my argument, my article, I argue, I focus specifically on the promises around building more, right? And I and I argue that 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 won't really improve affordability. Um, but in general, I think the that none of the none of the parties were actually offering meaningful uh, proposals that could actually make houses more affordable, i.e., drive down the price of housing. Um, and there is a good reason for that. Um, Politicians know that a huge amount of uh, wealth of Canadian households is wrapped up in home equity. Mm-hmm. Um, 
a lot of households rely on the the equity in their homes uh, to secure their retirement um, or to access more bank credit um, to pay for things like their kids' tuition Mm -hmm. or just to make ends meet. Or their kids' down payments on their new homes, which is also helping to keep house prices seriously inflated. The bank of mom and dad and the number, we're at the highest point ever in reverse mortgages ever in Canada right now, Joel. And the bank of mom and dad is actively fueling some just, it's, it's how most young people seem to need to get into the game. They need that extra boost of, of just raw cash from mom and dad, well, of course, that just keeps house prices way up there, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's also the case, right, that, you know, in the in the post-war period, I think, you know, when a lot of uh, boomers were coming of age, you know, there was this view that, you know, if you worked hard, um, you could afford to buy a house. Right. Um, but for our generation... We're actually going back to what it's been like for most of human history, where actually, if you want to get ahead, you need to be poised to inherit wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and that's why inheritance is becoming so much more important today. I mean, you can have two millennials with, with the same income, the same education, but if one of those millennials is poised to inherit a bunch of housing wealth from their parents, mm-hmm. that, that puts them ahead because they can get into the housing market. Um, and all the advantages that come with that. Indeed. Uh, I want to go back to the article just by way of setting up something I think is important to talk about, Joel. And again, a quote here. To understand the dynamics of housing markets, we need to distinguish between two prices, the price of owning a house and the price of renting it. Let's elaborate on it. Unpack that for us a bit, Joel. It's terribly important. (laughs) For sure. I mean, I know it's it's early in the morning, and so talking economics might not be the most exciting for people. But yeah, there's, um, I think that often, you know, when we're talking about housing markets, we, we talk just about the demand for demand for housing, but that's actually quite a vague statement. Um, there's two different kinds of demand. There's demand to own a house, Mm -hmm. which is demand for an asset and there's demand to rent a house. Um, so there's two different prices in housing markets. There's the price of rental, which is what economists would call the economic cost of housing. Um, And this cost is like any other commodity. It's shaped by the forces of supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also the price of owning a house. Um, And uh, that's an asset price, right? Because an asset is something that gives you benefits in the future. Right. Right. So when you're buying a house, you're buying something that's going to give you all these benefits in the future. And so the, the question then becomes, well, what are all those future benefits worth today? And economists will say that the price of an asset is determined by its future earnings um, adjusted for risk. I know that this no, no, might it's sound fine. very it's, but foreign. It's a, well, you, no, no, you and I uh, in Toronto and here in Vancouver happen, sir, to live in the two most expensive cities in Canada. If there's anything Vancouverites can follow, regardless of the time of day, Joel, it's the price of real estate. No problem here. For sure. Um, there's, there's, there's no question. And I think, you know, houses have always been assets um, in the sense that, you know, it's an investment, Right. If you're buying a house, you're making a big financial investment. Sure are. Um, but I think that, you know, in the past, it was more that investment was seen as, you know, you're investing to, to secure a home, to secure a place um, for you to have security, um, to raise your family, mm-hmm. what have you. But increasingly, um, I think people really are bringing this cold, calculated financial logic um, to valuing a house. Um, so yeah, it's, and then that's leading, uh, that, that's certainly contributing to high house prices. Um, yeah. yeah, you're talking about investing in an asset that, well, uh, certainly with the track record we've seen with Canadian housing prices over the last while, this is an asset that is almost guaranteed to appreciate. It's the almost, of course, that needs to be included in every conversation, but a lot of buyers don't see the almost. They just see, look, we need to buy a house because it's going to make us money. And by and large, that has been true. Is it going to continue to be true going forward, Joel, before we take the news break here in 30 seconds? What do you think? Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I have no crystal ball, so I can't say, and I certainly wouldn't want to 
um, you know, encourage people to, to make any kind of investment. Um, I would say that, you know, a lot of people feel that way um, because essentially Canadian government uh, has told them that uh, house prices only go up. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and they have spent a lot of money to ensure that that's the case. We're talking housing, and of course, we've been hearing a lot of talk about housing in the wake of this election campaign, five or six weeks of a lot of chatter about housing. All the parties crisscross the country, the party leaders promising to build hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of additional houses. That's the way to counteract the issue that we have with the housing supply. Our guest has written a piece entitled, More Supply Won't Solve Canada's Housing Affordability Crisis. We're speaking with Joel Roberts from York University, where he's a PhD candidate in uh, the School of Political and Social Thought. Joel, we're talking, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, interest rates, particularly, uh, because you make it a point in the article and then we'll zoom in on, on why more supply won't work. But interest rates have certainly contributed to the the fact that housing prices in this country, in your city and mine, Toronto and Vancouver, cost more than just about anywhere else in the world. Interest rates are definitely a factor in those numbers, aren't they? Yeah, they're a big factor. Um, so as I was saying before, if you want to understand the, the dynamics of house prices, um, it's good to think about a house like a business. Right, so a house uh, generates earnings for its owners. Yep. Um, so these earnings, you know, you can think of them the same way that you think of earnings of a business. It's the difference between revenues and costs. Now, for landlords, right, it's uh, the revenues of home ownership are clear. It's the monthly uh, checks they get from their tenants. Sure. Right. For owner occupiers, though, they also receive earnings, but it's the savings that they earn by virtue of not having to pay rent, right? And I think a lot of listeners will understand that when they're looking to buy a house. Well, I'll make these, you know, housing has, to buy a house has costs, but at least I won't be spending those monthly rental payments. So Mm. that's the savings that they earn. So those are the the revenues of home ownership are rents, the rental earnings, whether imputed or or actual checks from from tenants. Mm-hmm. Now the costs of home ownership um, are the, the depreciation, maintenance, utility costs, property taxes, mm-hmm. and also mortgage payments. Right, that's a huge component of the cost of owning a house. Um, but specifically, it's actually mortgage interest payments because when you make payments to your principal. That goes to your equity, so that's that's considered a form of saving. That's right. right. And again, I think a lot of people understand that. Yeah. You know, I'm making these monthly payments, but at least that not all of it's going to a landlord. At least some of it is 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 going to my home equity. So the earnings of home ownership are the difference between those revenues and costs. And so every time mortgage interest rates fall, that means that the earnings of home ownership go up, mm-hmm. and you can expect that buyers will be willing to pay more for that housing asset. And that's a, it's been a huge change, right? So in the, in the 80s, at the at peak interest, uh, when interest rates were their highest, a mortgage rate would have cost, uh, f- on a five-year conventional mortgage, is 18%. Mm-hmm. Right? That's a huge cost. Um, today, it's closer to 2 to 3%, right? So every time that the interest rate has fallen, mortgage rates have fallen, that has increased made houses essentially more valuable assets and so people bid up the price because it's cheaper to borrow more right it's cheaper to take on more debt right it's cheaper to to take out a larger mortgage and to and to bid up that house price okay and the second way that interest rates affect house prices is that um it affects the a key benchmark in financial markets which is essentially risk-free government debt so in the past right you might uh, invest your money just in government bonds. Um, it's seen as a very safe investment, and it's going to give you a pretty good return. But as the, the returns on those risk-free assets have fallen year over year over year, investors are looking for somewhere else to put their money. Um, and so, they're again, they're bidding up the prices of stocks, of, of corporate debt, and also of real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if the earnings of a home stay the same, investors are willing to pay more for that return. Um, and this is called sort of yield compression. It's falling yields in the housing market. So 
those are two major drivers of rising house prices. Of course, they're not the only uh, factors that matter um, because interest rates are similar across the world, but house rent prices do vary quite wildly. So in order to understand house prices in in specific locations like Toronto and Vancouver, you have to look at other factors, um, especially like risk determination. Mm -hmm. So an investor might be willing to pay a lot for a house in Vancouver because, you know, they believe that that's a very safe place to put your money. Um, you know, Vancouver is a dynamic city. It will grow long into the future. So I'm willing to pay a hefty premium for this for this house. So, so even though politicians are promising, and they promised uh, umpteen thousand, possibly even up to a million homes, depending on the party and the promises made, but for politicians to walk around talking about j- just doubling, tripling uh, in, in the, the supply of available housing, how would how would it's the old supply and demand ethic that we're supposed to go? Oh, of course. But that you're saying that more supply simply won't solve the affordability crisis because no matter how many more houses they build, they're still going to be out of the price range of most young people who are looking to get into the game. Yeah, I mean, I think that increasingly Canadians are are suspicious of this claim that all we have to do is build more because they've they've seen for for decades now. Um, I think Vancouverites can attest to this, right? There's been a ton of construction. Um, you know, the, the city has made all kinds of efforts to increase supply. It's changed zoning laws for in single-family neighborhoods to allow for duplexes. It's legalized laneway houses, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. secondary suites. Made all kind. It's approved thousands of housing units along uh, transportation routes, and this hasn't driven down prices. Um, and so, I think that there's a growing awareness that this this uh, isn't uh, working. Um, and the argument that, you know, the, actually the correct economic way to understand the, the effect of supply on a house price is to look at how supply shapes rental prices. So if, in fact, there was a supply shortage, what we would see, first and foremost, is really high rent prices. Mm-hmm. Now, it's true that rent prices have gone up, but they haven't gone up even close to the same extent that house prices have gone up. And what this tells us is that most of the growth in house prices can be accounted for simply by financial factors, yes, not not by a dearth of supply. Mm-hmm. Interesting, you would talk about rent in terms of, uh, of, of its uh, resurgence in the economy right now. And I think it's a very a- a good point to make, Jewel, as we're starting to see, for example, with COVID, everybody bailed, everybody that could bailed out of the cities and those germy places and found uh, whatever kind of uh, room they possibly could. And now, uh, a year and a half later, people are starting to repopulate the cities and we're starting to see rent uh, increases occurring in Toronto and Vancouver and elsewhere. Uh, simply, uh, it, it's just, again, now there's a supply and demand reality as students return from abroad and people migrate back to the cities from wherever they were in the Thule's. All of a sudden, there is a pressure on rents and prices will go up there too, won't they? Yeah, so, I mean, there's definitely a lot of pressure in, in, in rental markets. Um, and, you know, in my view, that part of the, the drive to home ownership is actually rooted in the fact that uh, we have very few good, uh, affordable, and secure rental units. And increasingly, um, uh, tenants in Canada are living in what's called the secondary rental market, which are rental units owned or, or, or rental units found in units designed for home ownership. So that's like condos, single, fa- uh, single detached houses, row houses. That's where a lot of renters, in fact, 50% of renters in this country are found. Mm-hmm. And rent- uh, these renters face an added layer of insecurity because the owners of these rental units can, can evict them by claiming personal use, um, which is something that you can't do. You, you, uh, tenants in, in larger apartment buildings can't be evicted on the grounds of personal use. So there's a lot of insecurity in rental markets. Rental prices are expensive. Um, and so this is, in many ways, this is what's driving also this desire for home ownership because, you know, the rental market is just not uh, a great place to be. Um, and for sure, that's where you would see um, a supply shortage. If there was a supply shortage, we would see very high rents. Yeah. And as I said, it's true that rents have gone up, but not even close to the same extent as house prices. If you look, if you look at the data over the last 20 years, you know, rents have mostly kept track with incomes. Um, 
The problem has been that, that there lots of uh, that wages have been following. So for those in the lower end of the income distribution, though, even those rents are increasingly hard to uh, are increasingly expensive. But in general, rents, you know, they've gone up, but not nearly to the same extent as house prices. Well, and that's, and so and that's that, and I have to leave point. it there because I'm, I'm out of time and I'm grateful for yours. And it's a really good point to make because you're talking about uh, the fact that housing prices have gone up and wages haven't correspondingly. It's If you're renting, it's still a slightly more affordable lifestyle and, and slightly more affordable. You can pull it off. But in terms of the rising house prices nationwide, wages have n- in no way kept up with them. So our ability to pay for them is still the same. And so we're just tacking on the debt like uh, like it's going out of style. Joel, it's a really good read. And I commend this uh, piece to our listeners. It's at theconversation.com, friends. Uh, more supply won't solve Canada's housing affordability crisis. And I guess we can add to that, Joel, unless perhaps it's rental housing. Uh, more, <laughs> more supply of that would be just really, really good. Thanks very much for this. It's great to speak to you. And it's a great piece. Thanks so much for having me. Have a wonderful day. A pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. He, uh, in front of many witnesses a few weeks ago, agreed to come back after the election to talk about what happened. Uh, Bill was with us a few weeks ago looking at what might happen. Bill Curry is back with us. Mr. Curry is the Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail and longtime financial writer as well. Bill, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks a lot. Well, it's great to have you with us. We'll talk money in a few minutes, but Bill, I'm just uh, curious as to your impressions overall. Again, on the newscast this morning, just a few minutes ago, John was talking about another win for the NDP on Vancouver Island, taking that seat back from the Greens. So the minority uh, situation remains for the Trudeau government, and really, with the, the exception of two or three seats, nothing much changed. What's your take on all of this? Well, yeah, it's interesting with the NDP. They're uh, they're starting to have some guess, uh, second guessing as well. They're um, they had had hopes of winning a lot more seats than than just one. Sure did. So uh, I don't think anybody is really uh, popping the champagne with the results on any of the uh, the main parties. The Liberals certainly kind of rolled the dice in the middle of the summer in the hopes of getting a majority. They never said those words, but that was uh, pretty obviously the goal. That didn't happen. Uh, they did end up with a couple more seats than than um, than they had with the start of this whole thing. So, right. uh, you know, if anybody could put a positive spin on it a little bit, it'd be the Liberals, because um, they get at least uh, some breathing room of a couple more years before other parties are going to start uh, itching towards trying to take them down in a minority parliament. I also think, too, with all of the... I mean, we saw in, in your BC election... That was a controversy right off the top of, you know, should should this election be happening? And that story kind of faded away after a couple couple of days in the B.C. campaign. But this one, it never faded. The, the calling of the election remained an issue. It was an issue in the French debates. It was an, an issue in the English debates. Right to the very end, it dogged Trudeau for not properly explaining the point of this whole thing. Right. So that's something for all parties to keep in mind, you know, when we get... Uh, you know, Trudeau's referenced. It's, it was, he, he got some criticism for referencing eighteen months, but that's just a statistic. That's the normal life. That's true of a minority parliament. Um, when we get to that mar- uh, marker again, I think whether you're the opposition parties thinking about taking down the government or the Liberals thinking about uh, another snap election, they're going to have to remember that uh, Canadians didn't take too kindly to the idea of uh, triggering an election uh, that early into. Which could be a four-year mandate if if uh, if there isn't a defeat. Well, no question about it, Bill. And and so the cynics in our midst, and you know a few, and so do I, uh, would take a look at the six hundred million plus tab for all of this and go, well. It turns out 600 million is not the price of a crown in Canada, but at 200 million per seat, it is the price of advancing the party, as you mentioned, a tiny bit uh, uh, in terms of the dynamic of the House. But either way, uh, you're right. The, the matter of an election about nothing dogged he who called the election for the entire period, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. It just it never went away. Um, and part of the issue is it, everybody knew what the main reason was, and uh, he, he couldn't say it, which was he wanted a majority government. And, right. and so 
when you have that awkwardness as your as your main uh, driving point of the election, it's, it makes it very hard for the Liberals to have a have a coherent message. And um, and the opposition parties, whether it was Aaron O'Toole or Jagmeet Singh, they never let up on that. Uh, I know there were some. It was interesting because there were some strategists who were saying uh, right off the bat when the opposition parties went off went on that that there would be a bad idea to complain about the election because it makes you seem like you you're already expecting to lose but um i mean it well we'll see how, how people uh, look at it in the rearview mirror but it did seem to be pretty effective in terms of uh blocking trudeau from having a clear message throughout the campaign one thing that did surprise people i guess it shouldn't have surprised us too much but it surprised many of us anyway uh was the the amount of, of, of money involved bill uh the the literally the driving around the flying around the country lit, the promises the laundry list of promises in the mega billions of dollars on the part of all leaders but particularly the government uh is i mean you wrote a piece the day after the election you co-wrote a piece and it, the, the headline was trudeau's re-elected minority government to face demands from the bloc and the ndp because in order to stay in power they're going to have to uh, rely on votes from outside parties and to get those votes and get that support they're no they're going to need to give those parties goodies and both the bloc and the ndp my gosh there was no shortage of promises uh, and program spending from either one of them was there that's right yeah well and there's an interesting thing on the timing of this uh because some people think the Liberals should have gone earlier, right after the budget. So they put in a budget, announced a budget in April. It was, a, it was their first one in over two years, yep. they, they, the first one for that minority parliament. So it had a whole spending plan for five years. Uh, arguably, they could have called an election right then and run on that. Sometimes you see governments use a budget as an election platform. Sure. So, so there was, here you had a detailed five-year spending plan from the Liberals just in April nineteen. And then a few months later, in uh, August, September, they have a whole new plan on top of everything that they just announced in April, which added up to $78 billion over five years. Right. So essentially what they did was uh, between August and April, the, the parliamentary budget officer had said things had improved. The forecast, uh, the deficits wouldn't be quite as large as pro- uh, estimated in the budget. And rather than just going with that and forecasting lower deficits, the Liberals essentially spent about half of that room in terms of allocating it and spending promises in the platform. So as, as you were just talking about, now we've got a liberal minority parliament. They're going to need one of the other three parties, whether it's the Conservatives, the NDP, or the Bloc. Right. We know from last parliament, the Conservatives usually take the view that they're the official opposition, so uh, it's pretty few and far between the moments where they're going to support uh, the government. So. I mean, that is an option for the Liberals. They could try to govern with the Conservatives, but I think that's pretty unlikely. Right. right. The, the, the block, the block, you know, is, is there from time to time. But on money votes, the last Parliament, if, if history is a guide, it was the NDP. And so what's the NDP platform? Well, you compare the $78 billion in new spending over five years. Well, the NDP platform was over $200 billion over five years. Yeah. So a lot more spending. Uh, really wants aggressive action on things like pharmacare, which yep. is pretty expensive. Dental um, care. Dental care, yeah. A lot of Student major Student loan forgiveness. Yeah. And uh, they also want a continuation of these emergency support programs, which that'll be the first big decision because a lot of those are starting to expire right. in the next few weeks, mm-hmm. months. So the NDP will be pushing to continue that. That's very expensive. So that's one of the first debates I think we'll see. Um but yeah, so the liberals are going to have to see, you know, there's there's overlap with the NDP in terms of thematics. It's it's the dollar amounts that change. You know, yes, they both agree on childcare and healthcare generally and, and that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. it's uh, it's the volume of spending, and then how are you going to pay for it? So I think, um, you know, some fiscal experts like the former parliamentary budget officer Kevin Page, he gave the NDP at least some credit. He said, you know. Sure, the the NDP is promising a lot of money, but at least they are talking about how are you going to spend, how are you going to pay for it. So right. they had a bunch of tax increases in their platform, and that's what Singh's been talking about since the election. That if the Liberals are going to reach out to the NDP, they want to see action on tax increases, and you get, there's a whole other debate we could have that they want to talk about a wealth tax, which is a completely different way of. T- 
taxation that is kind of foreign to the Canadian government at the moment. So I don't, the Liberals haven't shown much appetite for that. But that's the kind of discussion now we're going to have to have in Parliament, especially between the Liberals and the NDP. Bill Curry is on the line from Ottawa. Mr. Curry is the Deputy Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail and one of their principal financial writers as well. And Bill wrote a column actually a couple of days ago uh, entitled Federal Government Posts $12 Billion Deficit in July as the Liberals Face Calls for More Spending. And Bill, this is the money stuff that we were talking about before the break. And uh, all of this, uh, all of these programs and promises are going to have to be paid for. You talked about the parliamentary budget officer at least recognizing the fact the NDP had some made some effort to connect a few dots, uh, most of which have to do with tax the rich, uh, and I suppose the revelation that there simply aren't enough really, really, really rich people in Canada to make a difference is a bit of a downer for them, but uh, let's talk about the fact that it's still a minority. They're going to have to raise taxes to cover some of these tabs, Bill, but they don't want to do it too harshly because they're still a minority and there's going to be another election, as you say, in likely 18 months or so. Yeah, and when the Liberals had some tax increases in their platform to uh, account for their promised new spending, but, uh, you know, economists had some real doubts about some of those measures. Uh, some were, you, you would tax some businesses, but only the really big ones who had made a certain level of profit. Right. Uh, so there's questions about how exactly that would work. Um, they had another one about a minimum tax, but uh, economists pointed out we already have a minimum tax, so the Liberals couldn't really explain that one either. Uh, they're counting on billions of new revenue from giving new powers to the Canada Revenue Agency to be more aggressive. But again, economists and accountants will say, well, you shouldn't really book that because you don't really know for sure that's going to happen. Right. You know, that, that might happen. But historically... When governments have said, we're going to raise money from Canada Revenue Agency uh, enforcement, they've tended not to book that because it's, it's such an unknown. Um, there has been some recent history of, of getting uh, more revenue from extra enforcement, but uh, there's, a, there's a question of how much, you know, can you keep going to that well, or, or have we already kind of exhausted the, the amount of cash you can get from from shaking down people with very complicated uh, tax arrangements. Sure. So uh, bottom line, though, uh, it, they're still going to need that extra revenue to offset some of this program spending. Where do you think they're going to find the money, Bill? Uh, I don't I don't know the answer directly. Um, but like, there's, there's only two options. There's more debt. Uh, well, there's three options. More debt, uh, more taxes, or less spending. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, presumably it'll be a, a, maybe a mix of, of those three. The, the Liberals have the option. They've made these promises, but they can control the sequencing. If, if they don't really have the, the money for this, they can push some of that stuff down the road. Uh, that's something we've seen in the past. I'm sure they're they're definitely looking closely at the NDP platform to see if there's anything there they can stomach. Um, Some of the simpler ones, uh, the NDP has talked about raising the corporate tax rate. I mean, the the Liberals went a little bit down the road, that road, where they said they'd raise the corporate tax rate, but only on the the particularly profitable companies. So, you know, there's a little bit of, uh, they're not that far apart there. So that would be an option. Right. And uh, and then we talk about the wealth tax. That would that'll be a really fascinating discussion. I, I doubt the liberals will go down that road, but um, if they do, that would be a pretty big deal. A lot of European countries have tried that and then walked away from it. Uh, France, in particular, had one, and then a few years ago they abandoned it because uh, all the million, all the millionaires left. Um, you know, and we saw that have, in, uh, we saw that in Sweden in the eighties too, didn't yeah. we? So, Bill, uh, a, a, a final question to you here, and this is a stark reality: the Fed, the U.S. Federal Reserve, is already signaling in, interest rates increases in the the next year, probably in the first quarter of twenty two. Interest rates will subsequently go up, not hugely, but they will go up in Canada as well next year. How's that going to affect planning? Well, it, it's interesting because there, there's actually some good and bad to interest rates going up from a public finance uh, perspective. Because you're just so you mentioned that story I wrote this week about uh, the latest monthly deficit numbers, right. and um, low interest rates actually there's a, a big cost to that for the federal government as well because they have these huge obligations. 
uh, for public sector pension funds mm-hmm. that are tied to interest rates. And so when interest rates are really low as they are now, uh, that uh, worsens the deficit because they have to account for that uh, each year. Um, so if they're, you know, higher, higher interest rates helps them fund their own pension plans. So Interesting. It's, 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 it's not uh, black and white. I mean, big picture, um, obviously, if, if long-term bond rates go up uh, in line with interest rates, uh, that's going to affect debt servicing costs. But it's, uh, it's like I said, it's not black and white. There's actually some benefit to a bit of a uh, interest rate uh, gain in terms of public finances, too. Interesting stuff. Well, Bill, uh, reasonable to expect some kind of tax increase in calendar year 22. It'll be interesting to see what they finally decide, uh, which area of the economy they decide to go after. Thanks very much for doing this and honoring your commitment in front of all of those witnesses a few weeks ago to come back with us today and to do this uh, election postmortem and to take a look at some of the money... uh, problems that are going to be facing all of us and our government. Great to have you back. Thanks a lot. Always good to talk to you, sir. September. Our next guest wrote a piece at theconversation.com that caught our attention immediately. It was entitled, Why Have Canada and Australia Taken Such a Different Approach to China? Saw the headline, saw the co-author's name and thought, oh my gosh, let's get Margaret back on the program. Turns out to have been a very serendipitous decision as we have a lot more to talk about this morning. Margaret McQuaig Johnson joining us from the University of Ottawa, where she is a senior fellow in the graduate at School of Public and International Affairs. Uh, Margaret, uh, good morning and welcome. If I'm going to list your credits, I'm going to take half this darn interview. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us again. Thanks so much, Sterling. It's good to be with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, the serendipitous part of my decision to to, uh, ask you to join us again, and thank you for doing so, uh, because in between the time that you were booked and this morning's interview, we've had this rather momentous decision for a prisoner exchange. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, They call it uh, something else. What do you call it? Well, it's proof of hostage diplomacy, which is what it is. Um, people have talked a lot about the kidnapping of the Michaels and uh, a possible exchange with Mung. And what we're seeing now is that's exactly what it was. They took our citizens hostage to hold them as collateral until they got Meng Wanzhou home. Right. It's, it's really quite shocking. And, and, and patently obvious to all of us, 38 million of us have been watching, and, and so all of these protestations, no, it has nothing to do with a sheer coincidence. We've all known it's just Blarney and Blather, and we've known it since day one, haven't we? Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, you know, the, the Chinese have an expression, uh, to kill the chicken to scare the monkeys. And what that means is uh, do harm to one party to scare all the others, in, our, in this case other countries, to make them fall into line with China's policies and not find themselves in the situation that Canada's been in for more than two and a half years. Well, they use that expression in this, the context of this case. Well, and it's an interesting choice of expressions, too, isn't it? Let's talk about what's gone on in the last couple of years, because recently, as recently as last week, we had an, a very interesting decision, Margaret, by on the part of the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia to form a new alliance, a new defensive, specifically defensive against China alliance. Now, this would uh, s- seem to be redundant because we already have one called the Five Eyes, except that while Canada and New Zealand were deliberately excluded from this new arrangement called AUKUS, which is made up of the initials of the three countries involved, we weren't even informed that it was coming. We're completely blindsided by this. Why do you think this new alliance has so deliberately excluded Canada? Well, I think that for some time now, we haven't really been pulling our weight within the Five Eyes to to the extent that our government has not yet made a decision on Huawei, True. Uh, but Australia has. And, and so, the, the, you know, this is an example where we pull our punches uh, with China uh, so as not to poke the dragon. And this alliance is intended to stand up to China. Uh, seemingly, uh, they weren't convinced that Canada wanted to do that. And so they didn't bother to tell us that they were going ahead with this alliance. I think that this, uh, newly elected government uh, as one of its first steps 
should be to contact each of the members of uh, of the alliance, Australia, UK and US, and say, we would like to talk about how Canada contri- contribute um, on the technology front and help with the security of the Indo-Pacific, possibly becoming a member. And what if, uh, by way of advancing that request, they were told point blank, well, we're not even going to have a conversation or return your emails until we receive word that you've denied Huawei from, uh, at, at, and they're at the same point with you now as they are with the rest of us. Right. So I think, you know, one of the things that the government should be doing is finally announcing their decision on Huawei. I I have no doubt that they made the decision long ago. It's been more than three years that it's been under consideration, Mm -hmm. supposedly. Uh, And I know that the security agencies in Canada do not take, um, you know, more than three years to, to develop their advice to the government. I think that that, you know, the, the government did not want to upset China while it was still holding the Michaels. But now uh, they should go ahead and announce that for national security reasons, we will not be accepting Huawei technology. Um, at the same time, I think this deal with Meng Wanzhou, uh, we need assurances that um, there have been no other concessions by the Canadian government uh, to the Chinese regime, um, you know, it, it was suggested that um, that you know perhaps behind the scenes Canada might have agreed. Oh, okay. Well, if you release the Michaels, we'll we'll let you use Huawei in our 5G system. Uh, Canadians would be outraged if that had happened. So mm-hmm. I ha- I have to think that they wouldn't have gone that far. So, in terms of uh, hidden conditions attached to the deal, are you suspicious that there are? Well, I'm hoping not. Um, uh, Meng did make some concessions herself to the U.S. Department of Justice, um, which allowed her to go free. Basically, Mm -hmm. she said that uh, there was fault on her part, although she didn't admit guilt. She uh, admitted fault in the statements that she had made in in the uh, presentations to the financial institution. And that can be used against Huawei as a corporation by the Department of Justice to hold them accountable as a corporation. Um, I just hope that we didn't concede anything in Canada uh, and simply uh, are receiving our our people back. Um, So we'll have to see going forward. I'm sure you're aware, Margaret, of the extent of the allegations of interference in the recent Canadian election by Beijing through its uh, pro-Beijing mouthpiece outfits, organizations, and publications across Canada to the extent where uh, uh, personal attacks have been uh, leveled at conservative candidates. Uh, Chinese Canadians as a group were encouraged to vote liberal shamelessly by these pro-Beijing publications. Uh, A degree of of interference in a Canadian election process that's typical, Margaret, or perhaps reaching new heights? I think it's reaching new heights. Um, there has always been influence and, and to some extent interference, especially uh, in the lives of Chinese Canadians who left China uh, because they didn't like the regime. Right. And, and so the, China continues to try to to um, extend its reach into other countries uh, by putting pressure on the citizens of other countries. It was much more stark in this case, um, the interference in the elections. And looking back at Australia, they've passed um, a a registry uh, for foreign agents. We don't have that. And uh, the parliamentary committees have been calling for that here in Canada, and it's something, again, that should be a priority for the new government. Margaret, it, it, poll after poll for the last year has shown that well over 80, it's, it's the last number I saw, I can't remember, it was either 87 or 88% of Canadians asked thought that the position of our government vis-a-vis China was weak. 
And so if you've got, you're up into the high 80s in terms of percentages, you're now talking a lot about a lot of people who actually voted for the government anyway, but still disagreed with our policy about China. They think the government is weak. So will the government now, based on their, well, return, such as it is, but with this knowledge about China, very, very much front and center, do you expect any change at all in the Canada-China relationship? Well, I, I certainly hope so. Um, and I've, I've identified some areas where the government has been weak. Um, uh, the one thing they have done is uh, they've said, as the cat trag or uh, tagline goes, uh, the China of 2021 is not the China of 2017 when they were uh, negotiating a, a free trade agreement or, or having talks towards negotiation of a free trade agreement. And that's absolutely right, that the China of Xi Jinping has dramatically changed in recent years. Mm-hmm. And um, and so foreign companies there are all under new pressures now. Um, I I think, you know, it's encouraging to hear the government say, say things like that. And I'm hoping they'll jump out ahead of the parade of the millions and millions of Canadians who have negative feelings about China and uh, and start to um, protect Canadian interests and uh, and you know take take uh, bigger steps and start to act like a middle power, not a small power. Margaret McQuaig Johnson is on the line from the University of Ottawa, where she is a senior fellow in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Margaret is one of Canada's foremost China experts, uh, 37 years a Canadian public servant, 13 of them as an assistant deputy minister. She has co-authored, along with a, a colleague from Australia, a piece entitled, Why Have Canada and Australia Taken Such a Different Approach to China? Margaret, let's talk about the, the nuts and bolts of this uh, this piece that you have written along with John Garrick from Charles Darwin University down under. Uh, Let's talk about what Australia has done that a lot of Canadians really would like to have seen Canada do almost simultaneously over the last two or three years. Uh, Yeah, right. And and they're a very similar country uh, to Canada in a lot of ways. Um, uh, You know, we're we're members of Five Eyes, we're members of the Commonwealth, uh, and but they are, uh, seem to be standing up to, to China um, much more formidably than we are. Um, and I mentioned that they have a registry for foreign agents. Uh, they were one of the first countries to ban Huawei from their 5G system. And, you know, their trade with China is much more than ours is. And yet they've got the gumption uh, to take much stronger action. And they've got a review now underway of um, a lease of the Darwin port that a local uh, government uh, negotiated with China, a 99-year lease that gives China access um, or or control over the port at Darwin on the top um, north uh, shore of Australia. Right. Like, when is that a good idea? Mm-hmm. And so that's under review and uh, by the central government. So, you know, they've, they've been acting as a strong middle power. They've been standing up to a lot of the pressures that, um, that China is putting on them. Uh, whereas Canada, uh, you know, we haven't uh, announced on Huawei. Uh, we've had a review uh, by the CRTC underway for more than a year and a half to determine if uh, CGTN, the, the uh, Chinese television network, and CC, CCTV should be delisted from Canada because they've been uh, airing uh, forced confessions. And um, uh, there's an international um, uh, NGO that's really pu- pushing uh, countries to uh, to ban these uh, uh, networks right. uh, because of that. The, Australia and Britain have banned them, uh, but Canada hasn't spoken up about that yet. We sim- seemingly haven't made a decision. There are many ways in which we should be supporting Taiwan, most recently for their um, uh, admission to the um, 
comprehensive uh, partnership for uh, Trans-Pacific trade. Mm -hmm. And we've said we're not going to take sides on that, so we're not doing that either. Um, And, you know, uh, I I was at a meeting when... Uh, in summer of 2019, when uh, messages were relayed uh, from Beijing to Canadian officials via um, Canadian academics who are fair- friendly with China, and um, they they were saying uh, Canada is not a middle power; it's a small power, and you have to start stop leaning. Uh, towards the U.S. and favoring them. You have to start leaning towards China, they Mm. said. Mm. And uh, so, you know, now we've been acting as a small power by pulling our punches uh, on these important things that we should be doing. Margaret, I wanted to ask you, we don't have all the time in the world, but I think this is important. You mentioned that Australia, very similar to Canada, and they are, in fact, their trade activity level with China is higher than ours. So, And they have risked and they have taken direct economic hits by standing up to China. China has punished Australia and restricted the uh, the access to their market for certain Australian exports, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet, Australia has remained uh, steadfast in its objection to Chinese activities and taken the hit right on the chin in some cases, and it hasn't been pretty. Canada has not done the same. So are we afraid to take an economic hit? Is that our, our, our bottom line? We're just, we don't want to risk uh, the, the economic backlash? I think that's a big part of it. Um, I know the Canadian business community has been putting pressure on uh, the Liberal government uh, to send mom home for the last two and a half years. They want things to go back to business as usual. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it ever will. Uh, I think we've uh, long gone are the days of the Chrétien government with the, the big ba- banquets in Beijing. The and, Team Canada and, stuff, and, yeah. The Team Canada stuff, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, I, I think we're, we're not back to that. But uh, the we've had a hits on canola, uh, pork, beef, uh, soy, and um, and the Canadian business community doesn't want any more of that. And mm-hmm. the, the, the uh, government has tried to keep a low key because of that. Although they did take China to the WTO on the canola case. And China's been trying to block that case, uh, which is still working its way through uh, the WTO two years later. So, uh, and as part of that, again, I'm just curious because, you know, if, if there's such a strong feeling nationwide, regardless of party affiliation with respect to our country and our stance against China, our posture against China, if, if 88% of 38 million people think we're doing a terrible job and we, we're being weaklings, we're being doormats, something's got to give. What do you think is going to happen here? Well, now that we have our Michaels back, I think there's more... Uh, there will be more flexibility to take some of these actions. I hope there will be, although uh, there will still be also attempts to uh, help Robert Schellenberg, who has an execution sentence against mm-hmm. him uh, for drug uh, possession. Um, and so the, there, there will still be that hanging out there. But I think I'm hoping that the government will um, develop a stronger backbone uh, to bring in some of these measures. I also hope that in uh, talking to the members of AUKUS, as you say, uh, I'd like it to be caucus mm-hmm. uh, with Canada sure. as the first uh, initial, um, but I, I hope that we'll have a discussion about Canada acquiring nuclear subs. That was discussed in the late 80s. In 87, Mulroney announced that they were going to be doing this. Um, and then two years later, it was uh, cancelled uh, mm-hmm. because of high costs. But I think, you know, if we're serious about patrolling our Arctic, and we know that China has announced its plans to have military infrastructure. Time to in get the a, Arctic. time to upgrade and get in the game. Margaret, I must leave it there. I'm, I'm afraid uh, I'm fr- fr- fresh out of time, and I'm always very grateful for yours. Thanks so much for making a little room for us on this auspicious weekend with the return of the two Michaels. Much appreciated.
Happy to be with you, Sterling. Thanks. According to the folks at Our Shot Canada, 55,686,997 doses of COVID-19 vaccine have been administered to Canadians. That's an awful lot, you would think. That would pretty much take care of all of us, you would think. But of course, we know, uh, sadly, that it isn't. Uh, one of the founders of This Is Our Shot is family physician Dr. Barinder Narang. And he joins us right now with more on this reality from This Is Our Shot. Dr. Narang, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am well, thank you, sir. Nice of you to join us. We do appreciate you. Uh, the the numbers, uh, 55 plus million doses administered, a significant number of uh, us Canadians have been vaccinated. Many of us double vaccinated. But, Doc, there's still a problem with misinformation. And most recently this week, and you deal with this on uh, on your website, This Is Our Shot Canada, with some of the, uh, the uh, issues that are out there on social media causing hesitancy. And Dr. Henry's been very adamant this week in terms of vaccines and pregnant women. Can you talk more about that, please? Yeah. So, so first off, thanks. Yeah, no, we um, I'll just give a highlight to the, the campaign. So this is our shot with a, a group of um, is a grassroots effort of just physicians and which then we teamed up with Corporate Canada and other um, influencers to really fight this misinformation. And one of the misinformation um, that we were fighting since the beginning was was about pregnant women. Yeah. And and a lot of that is is not unreasonable because um, we know that uh, with vaccines that there have uh, when you're when you're it's different in a pregnant population because you're not just thinking about one person, you think about two people. Sure. And so totally understand that. But no. So what, what we have learned, though, is that there have been large studies internationally that have been done that have shown that there have been no um, adverse outcomes on mothers or uh, fetuses during pregnancy. But we're learning more and more about the COVID impact on, um, on, on pregnant populations. And what we're seeing is that there have been higher rates of preterm del- um, birth, which means um, delivering uh, a baby before it's reached its full term of 36 weeks mm-hmm. and actually higher rates of stillbirth as well. And so that's very concerning. We know in the fourth wave in British Columbia that there have been um, quite a few pregnant women uh, admitted um, for COVID because we know that if you get COVID while you're pregnant, um, the other thing is that you tend to uh, have a higher risk of requiring hospital care. Right. So now, uh, along the same lines, though, in terms of pregnancy, some people are trying to get pregnant, doctor, and are saying that, you know, I'm not going to complicate this delicate process in any way with some foreign chemical substance. So I'm worried that it would make me infertile. And both men and women are saying that. You've heard it. Yeah, no, to- uh, totally. We've heard it, and um, again, that's something that the science does not um, support. So let's talk about the other, uh, the mRNA vaccine. The mRNA, vac- mRNA vaccines, they're primers for your immune system. The mRNA um, uh, uh, molecule itself is, is is very unstable in in the human, so it's going to degrade within a week or two anyway. So it's not going to stay in your system. The only thing that's in your system is what your own immune system has produced. There's no biological reason why it would make anyone infertile. And the study has proven that, that there hasn't been any impact on fertility so far, um, or that uh, male or women. But we are seeing um, specifically for men that if they do have COVID, that there has been um, a reduction in sperm quality and sperm count. Now, these aren't huge studies, but there has been an indication. And, you know, we're still learning about what are the impacts of long COVID. And, um, you know, it's going to take a long time for us to understand that. Um, the other, only other thing I'll say about vaccines and pregnancy is um, for we've known for a long time that the only vaccines we can't give in pregnancy are live vaccines. That's when you're giving a live virus as part of the vaccine, which mm-hmm. is a more, uh, an older way of stimulating the immune system, chicken pox, um, uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccines. So we don't give those in pregnancy because they are live vaccines. Um, but we, what we always do is we encourage people who are planning to get pregnant to make sure they have that vaccination before they get pregnant because... Um, we know we can't give it there. But we also know it's important because a lot of these uh, illnesses can affect um, the youth. So you want to make sure if you're getting pregnant that you're 
you know, protect, protect as you can before pregnancy. And I, I would use that same spirit in we're discussing the COVID vaccine. If you're planning to get pregnant, it, it, it's incumbent on you get the COVID vaccine beforehand. Mm. Um, we know that there might be um, some immunity that's conferred as well if you get it in pregnancy um, to the fetus or newborn. Um, but also, we know that thing about the COVID vaccine is you're not only protecting yourself, you're protecting those around you. Indeed. Uh, back uh, on the website, just uh, just yeah. uh, by way of, of uh, pointing out to our listeners, you have myth-busting videos on your website in which you have physicians like yourself answering questions like, does COVID-19 injection cause erectile dysfunction? Something that we haven't touched on this morning. I assume the short answer is no. Yeah, definitely not. Okay, and here, here's one that, that I think I'd like you to talk about for a moment, if you wouldn't mind, please. And again, it's one of your myth-busting questions. Uh, because the word, for those who are hesitant, resistant, call it what you will, the adjective experimental is most frequently used. So thus, pr- 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 bringing about the question, are COVID-19 vaccines safe? Were they rushed into production too quickly? Absolutely not. And I think that um, the way that I think about this is it's it's, you know, when when I if I spend 10 um, minutes with a patient, um, it isn't that I spent 10 minutes with the patient, but the patient has spent, you know, the years of my experience in practicing as a physician um, and training to become a physician. Um, and that's your, 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 the appointments with the experience. And so the same thing with the vaccine is the mRNA technology was actually in development for 30 years um, for this very purpose of being ready for vaccines. Started in the late 80s, early 90s, um, multiple um, groups of scientists working on it. Um, it became ready for application within a few years of, of the pandemic uh, being called. So it was um, a, a kind of a, a unexpected coincidence that it was ready at the time that it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was one of the first large applications for it. So then that you take that the technology had its um, you know trials in animals. Um, they perfected what they needed to make sure it wasn't causing the effects that you'd want it to be, and then it was ready for human application. And then this happens. And then um, you, when you look at the phase one, two, three, like the whole enrollment, those are different um, uh, parameters and, and stages we use to test out any drug or vaccine. Um, you have to get mass enrollment around the world. You have to get a lot of funding to get these trials off the ground. Sure. Um, and all of that stuff happened really smoothly because it was a global effort. So you had these things happening in parallel. Um, but because of the technology, they were able to identify the spike protein and gener- generate the mRNA that would be needed for it very quickly mm-hmm. once the, the, the viral genome was um made uh, available. So you have this global concerted effort, but when you look at the actual data we look at for safety in humans, um, the phase three studies, those were not rushed by any means. The enrollment happened quickly, but the same, what we would be looking at with two months now after that six months and now, which is um, we have, um, you know, up to like six to eight months worth of data now, probably more that they're working on because the first studies were in March 2020. Right. And so we have over a year of data. Mm-hmm. That I haven't seen that yet, though. So they're probably still, um, um, you know, doing follow ups and, 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 and creating the data sets. But what we have shown is that they're robust. They're safe. Um, even in the wave of Delta, where we, uh, if you look at the latest uh, BCCDC uh, report from this week, in British Columbia, um, you're 11 times more likely to become a case if you're unvaccinated, 59 times more likely to be hospitalized, right. and 19 uh, times more likely to die. So, I mean, uh, that the, what we're seeing in reality now, even with a Delta um, variant, which no one anticipated, mm-hmm. which is more infectious, um, a more uh, well, actually, I don't know about more severe, but we're still learning about that. But you're definitely more infectious. It's still keeping people out of hospital and keeping them alive. Doctor, what about Mu? We're starting to hear about yet another variant, MU. It's one of those Greek alphabet names, uh, and it's yeah. thought not to be as as intimidating as Delta, but nonetheless, it's new. It's here in BC. What do you know about that? Yeah, so it's um, the new variant was first found in uh, 
Columbia, I believe, and it's been in British Columbia since June. So okay. I think that's important to, to understand too. It's been here. It's been around. It, it's been classified as a variant of interest but not a variant of concern so what that means is that when the who classifies something as a variant of interest that there are some changes in it which they um, um, are predicted um, to either increase transmissibility or severity or um, uh, escape the immune system and so um, that's different than the other ones which are variants of concern which they're much more confident and has been shown will have these more severity or more transmissibility. So they suspect that it could be. But what we're seeing in BC, that there's been, um, I, again, I haven't looked at the data this week, but I think it was 40 to 50 um, cases since June, the last time I checked, which was last week. And um, it isn't, it isn't um, out-competing the Delta variant. The Delta variant uh, um, accounts for 99% of the cases in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. And Alpha variant, um, which is the one originally identified in the United Kingdom, accounts for 1%. Mm-hmm. And so what we're saying is while it is a variant of interest, we're not seeing that it's, it, like, it's just not able to compete with the Delta variant. Um, and the fact that we're not seeing more of it to me, suggest that the vaccine is effective against it, too. Interesting. So, again, though it is here and we've known about it for a while, it doesn't pose the same existential threat, perhaps, uh, that Delta does. Exactly. Okay. And the, right. the other, and not only existential, but um, um, uh, uh, practical threat. Now, the other thing that's important to remember is over the summer when cases were low, our public health team, um, or CDC, I should say, was uh, where every case was identified, they were doing whole genomic sequencing on it to know exactly what was happening in the community. Right. And so uh, I think we could be fairly confident um, in the cases that they did identify that that we have a good picture of what the variants are. Because even within the, the variants, there are slight changes that right. we see, but it doesn't mean it's called a whole new variant. Dr. Narang, I thank you very yeah. much for joining us this morning, sir. And again, thank you for that website. Our guest, Dr. Barinder Narang, is one of the founders of thisisourshot.ca. It's a great little website. If you know anyone who's still hesitant, still a little reluctant, direct them to thisisourshot.ca. Dr. Narang, thanks very much for this. Thank you. Have a great day. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.